Uh, hey, my name's Ben Clausen. If we haven't met, I lead the college ministry here at Creekside, and man, it is just a joy to be here with you guys today. I, uh, I've been here at Creekside for like a year now, and I just, I just love you guys. Creekside's awesome. It's so good to get to be with you guys today. Great video, beautiful morning, Aggies won. I'm, it's good to be alive. It's good to be alive. Uh, and we're studying Revelation 7. I mean, it's like, it's hard to beat this morning. It's hard to beat this morning. Um, hey, okay, to open, big idea, big idea. We love long-term faithfulness or loyalty. We love long-term faithfulness or loyalty, right? Think about stories that just warm your heart. The story of the couple that's been married for 60 whole years. You ever been to a wedding where they do the like longest married dance? where they get all the married couples out on the dance floor, and then everyone's starting to dance, and then they're like, you've been married less than three years, get off the dance floor. Less than 10 years, less than 20, 40, 60, and then there's left this couple that's just like dancing kind of like this on the dance floor. Uh, they've been married 60 years, and that story just warms your heart because we love long-term faithfulness. We love long-term faithfulness. Think about an athlete who takes a pay cut to stay with their beloved team because they're loyal. Or think about a employee who retires after 50 years of faithful service to a company. Or think about, you ever heard the story of that dog, Hachiko? Is that, is that one too emotional? Hachiko, the dog in Japan who uh, waited at the train station every day until its owner came home. And then, do I even want to finish this story? Its owner passes away, the dog goes to the train station every single day. It just met, melts your heart. There's a statue, Hachiko. Look it up. It's a movie and everything. Uh, Richard Gere, Ronald Gere, what's his name again? Richard Gere. Anyway, we love long-term faithfulness <laughs> or loyalty. <laughs> and listen, we love this specifically because here in the 21st century, it's, it's sort of a rare commodity, right? Like, Marriages often don't make it to 60 years. Employees jump jobs left and right. You heard about my generation? We stay in a job for like 15 minutes these days. <laughs> Employees stay in jobs not for very long at all. Athletes take whatever job they can get, whatever team they can get the largest amount of money from in a lot of ways. And dogs are still perfect. Dogs are still perfect. <laughs> Hachiko is, is absolutely perfect, 100%. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Well, hey, we've been moving through the book of Revelation. And a thing that we've been seeing is the faithfulness of God to do what he says he's going to do. But if we're completely honest, when you read the book of Revelation, there's a temptation or a little bit of a threat to look at what we're reading and say, are, are, are you sure? Like, is this really going to happen? Like, the seven, you read what we read last week? The seven seals and the bowls and the trumpets, the Antichrist, the beast, all of these crazy things that happen in the book of Revelation. The, the temptation for us is to ask the question, is God really going to be faithful to do what he says he's going to do? And the temptation is to look at this book and some different parts of it and say, will God be faithful or will he be like us? And say, you know what? This is all a big old mess. I'm going to wipe the slate, start over with Jupiter. I don't know. Is God just done with the earth? Is he going to give people a chance to respond? We started last week the judgments of God. So the question is, is God done with humanity? Or will God be faithful to keep on saving, to do what God does? The good news is that today... We're going to see the beautiful truth that God is faithful to his people and his promises. 
God is faithful to his people and his promises. Today, I am giving you a one-point message. My one point is that God is faithful to his people and his promises. In fact, that point is so important that I would love to just invite us all to say it together. So let's say it all together. God is faithful to his people and his promises. Excellent. You guys sounded great. So if you've got a Bible, meet me in Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to see surprise how God is faithful to his people and his promises. Revelation chapter 7. Last week, we started the book of Revelation, in Re- or we uh, read we started the judgment portion of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 6, and we began to look at what's known as the tribulation period, the tribulation period. So essentially, if you're thinking in your eschatological uh, timeline, the next thing that's going to take place is we, the church, every single person who believes in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, who believes in his death and resurrection, is one day going to be raptured, taken to the earth, and redeemed, brought to Jesus' presence, and taken off of the earth, kept safe from all of the coming tribulation. So people will be left on the earth in this seven-year tribulation period, and it's, it's really not going to be pretty. Like, things are, things are going to get pretty ugly. If you were here last week, Matt introed this idea of the, of the seven seals. There are three sets of judgments in the book of Revelation. There's the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, right? So the last seal opens up the first trumpet, last trumpet opens up the first bowl, and so on. And it's, it's really not good. And in the middle of the tribulation, there are all kinds of things going on that are really, really terrible. And last week, we saw the first of the six seals be opened of God's wrath and judgment. Six of the seven seals were opened. But then something really interesting happens. You would expect in a normal story as you're going along, first seal, this happens, second seal, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then the seventh. But before he gets to the seventh, chapter seven actually happens. It's a, it's a pause in the narrative. It's a pause to say, wait, you need to know something really important, though. It's like the eye of the storm, in a way. Uh, I grew up in Baytown, Texas, so hurricanes were commonplace for us, and my family got pretty tough with them. Like, category four was like, meh, nothing. So I remember, I don't remember which one it was, but we stayed for a category four one time, because my dad was like, ah, we got a generator, and we'll be fine, a couple water bottles. So we stayed put in Baytown, and it, it was like, there were moments that we were like, this storm's, this storm's pretty ugly, Dad. Uh, trees were falling, and branches were falling, all kinds of stuff, but then the eye of the storm settled over us, and I remember being outside in the front lawn, like, throwing around the football, and you could literally hear, like, your neighbor a, a mile away drop a pin. It was so quiet and so still. You ever been in the eye of a storm before? It was wild. And then, of course, the rain began again, the winds blew, and we made, we made it through the storm, good news. Um, but there was a storm nonetheless. And right here, this chapter sort of feels like, like the eye of the storm, like a pause, like a reprise. It's an interlude in the middle of the story. So let's see what God has to tell us about the interlude, why God decides, decides to pause in the middle of the story and what he wants us to see. Revelation chapter 7 Verse 1, let's see what it says. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, kind of like the eye of a storm, that no wind might blow on earth or against any tree. So notice the contrast between the end of Revelation chapter 6 and here, the beginning of Revelation chapter 7. At the end of Revelation 6, things are getting so ugly that people are hiding 
They're trying to get away from God's presence as much as they can to try and avoid the judgment. People are like hiding in caves, thinking God can't find me in a cave. I, I don't understand that. And then as we start Revelation chapter 7, it's a different scene. It feels like a deep breath. Because all of a sudden, it pictures angels holding back the winds from the earth. There's not even wind on the earth. Wind throughout the scriptures. There's all kinds of imagery in this passage. All kinds of imagery in Revelation. And wind is often seen as the coming of God's judgment. Hosea chapter 13 pictures this. Even though he flourishes like a reed plant, a scorching east wind will come. A wind from the Lord rising up from the desert. As a result, his springs will dry up. His well will become dry. That wind will spoil all his delightful foods in the containers in his storehouse. Saying that the winds of destruction are going to come. But not yet. But not yet. The angels are holding them back. But what are they holding them back for? Let's keep reading. Chapter 7, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. There's more imagery. The imagery this time is of an angel rising with the blazing morning sun. He's rising from the east. What happens in the east? The sun rises. And in the east, in the scriptures, the east is often the direction which deliverance comes from. So here he's saying, an angel is rising with the blazing morning sun, bringing in his hand deliverance. What does he hold? He holds a seal. He holds a seal in his hand. Wrong, not that kind of seal. He holds in his hand that, that was silly. Uh, (laughs) He holds that kind of seal in his hand to mark his people. Now, um, essentially, this is the kind of seal or signet that it's, that it's depicting. It's the kind that marks and shows this thing is mine. It's mine. In the first century, um, first century slaves were often marked with what was known as a seal by a signet. And the seal often appeared as either a brand or a tattoo. So these first century slaves, anytime they like escaped or went out, it would be really clear whose they were, who they belonged to. It would be really clear who they belonged to. It's, it's kind of like here what a collar is to a dog. Have you ever found a dog uh, without a collar on it? There is much confusion when you find a dog without a collar. I remember my roommates in college found a dog without a collar, named it Tyra Banks. Why did we name it Tyra Banks? Because we didn't know that dog's name. Its name probably was not Tyra, but we named it that nonetheless because there was so much confusion with a dog. So um, when, a dog, when you find a dog with a collar, though, all confusion is immediately removed. There's no chance to keep the dog because the dog immediately, whose it is, is made abundantly clear by the collar. And similarly, what is happening here is he's making really clear, those who are sealed with my signet are clearly mine. There's no confusion here. Those who are marked with the seal of the living God, all confusion immediately removed, they're mine. They're mine. That's what he's making clear here. And it's a reference to Ezekiel chapter 9 in this really interesting passage that says this. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all of the abominations that are committed in the temple. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city and strike. What he's saying is that those who are marked with the seal of God are kept safe. They're kept safe from the coming calamity. And that's what he's picturing here as well. If you're marked, you're secure. 
You're protected completely and full from the calamities of the tribulation. And then a couple chapters ahead in chapter 9, it pictures how this works. They were not told to damage the gra- they were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were kept safe. Those who were marked are kept safe from the coming calamities. And listen, this is like no new thing in the story of God's, of God's history, right? And God's saving and protecting of his people. Just think about Genesis chapter six. What happens? When God sends the flood to the earth, he seals Noah and his family from the rest of the human race so the waters wouldn't hurt them. Think about Genesis chapter 19. God told Lot and his family to get out of Sodom before the fire descended, sealing them from terrible judgment. Think about Exodus 12. God sealed the firstborn of the Jewish families who applied sacrificial blood to their doorposts in their homes in Egypt. Think about Joshua 2 and 6. God sealed Rahab and her household when he destroyed Jericho. Think about 1 Kings 19. God had sealed 7,000 Israelites in Elijah's day who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. And on to today, Ephesians 1.13. All who believe in Christ are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. We're marked secured by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 and 1 Peter 1.4, our futures are sealed and secured when God is the one who marks us. Our futures are secure. God is in the business of protecting his people from calamity, from keeping us safe from whatever comes our way. So who gets the seal is the big question. Who receives this seal on their foreheads? And that's the subject of the next couple of verses. So go on to read verse 4 and 4 through 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. 144 Israelites, 12,000 from each of the tribes. Now, two interpretive options regarding who this group is. The first interpretive option is that this group is the fulfillment of Israel. And in reality, it's just the church. This is a synonymous name for the church, essentially. The numbers are figurative. It doesn't really mean anything. It's actually just the church. That's the first interpretive option that some people go with. The second one is that this is literally a distinct group of ethnic Israelites. Now, this is the one that we here at Grace Bible Church hold to. We believe that the 144,000 is a remnant of ethnic Israelites who will be protected from the tribulation and enter into the millennial kingdom after the tribulation. Why do we believe that? Well, for a few reasons. First is, why would John, the writer, go to painstaking lengths to write out all of the different individual tribes, be so specific, if it's just like imagery, right? Why would he go to that length to do that? Second, the name Israel, the title Israel, is never used synonymously in the New Testament with the church. It's never used to to signify the church. But the biggest reason is because we believe that Israel is distinct from the church and God has promised ethnic Israel a future. So, okay, give me two minutes of Old Testament nerd out to how we sort of got here. You're probably wondering how we got here, one of those moments. And it's gonna be awesome to see how God is the God who is faithful to his people and his promises. Go all the way back with me to Genesis, oops, wrong way, Genesis chapter 12. This is when the Lord gives the Abrahamic covenant to the tribe of Israel, to Abram. He says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So three things are promised to Abraham right here. Land, the land of Israel, the land seed, which is descendants, and blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. That's what he promises. Now, a, a great way to read Revelation, when we're reading Revelation, a thing to look out for is what are the prophecies, the promises of God that haven't been fulfilled yet. All of those, every promise of God will be fulfilled in the end. If there are things that are left unfulfilled, God will do it. God will do it. So right here we see that Israel, the, the seed part of that promise is fulfilled. There are tons of Israelites all around the world, but the land part isn't fulfilled. Ethnic Israel is not ruling in the land with a king over them. And then 2 Samuel chapter 7 clarifies this even further. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house. God promises a house, a place that they will be dwelling. And then on, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Note, that is a singular, not plural, offsprings. It's the singular offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now, Jesus right now, right here right now, is ruling and reigning on his throne in heaven, but he's not here as our earthly king. We, don't, we can't go to a place that Jesus is ruling, but that's promised, that Jesus will rule over Israel in the future. And then as we turn to the New Testament, what does God do? God welcomes in the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, into his family. And there's this big question. Is God done with Israel? Is God done working through ethnic Israel? Those promises that he made, is he like, well, that didn't work out? Well, no, Romans 11 tells us this. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, not saying every specific Israelite, but a representative number of all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Sion. He will, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and, I will be, and I, this will be my covenant with him when I take away their sins. God is promising, you with me? that there is a future for ethnic Israel. God has a future for ethnic Israel. So here, we see that being fulfilled. Why? Because God is faithful to his people and his promises. And how is it being fulfilled specifically here? By the 144,000 being a remnant of ethnic Israelites who will be protected from the tribulation and enter into the millennial kingdom. This is how God is establishing and finishing the promises of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. This is how God's doing this. You with me? And what's beautiful about this, to take a step back from, from the depths and specifics of this, is that even in the midst of his judgment, God is still bringing people to himself. We're in the part of the scriptures that's supposed to be all wrath and judgment, right? This is when God says, you had your chance. No. This is when God speaks to the earth in the midst of the tribulation and says, I know things are ugly, 
I know my wrath is raining down on the earth, but I'm still the God who desires to save the nations. I'm still the God who made promises, who fulfills promises, who keeps promises. I'm still the same God. I'm still the same God who 2 Peter 3, 9 is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is in the business of bringing beauty from the ashes, right? Reminds me of the drought that we all experienced this summer. You look around town this summer, and what do you see? The ground is brown and dry and cracked and desolate. Our lawns were hopeless. And then all of a sudden, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights in August. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, what happened? Somehow, your lawn came back to life. The crepe myrtle started to bloom. Wildflowers sprung up all around town from the desolation where beauty was brought forth. Beauty was brought forth. This is what our God does. He brings beauty in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of everything. But the good news is, God isn't just doing this just for ethnic Israel. Let's keep reading this passage and see who else God desires to bring into his family. Verses 9 through 14. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where do they come? I love how they do this in Revelation. One of the people who knows the answer is like, Who are they? And then John said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. One commentator I read on this said, Without doubt, this is one of the most exalted portrayals of the heavenly state to be found anywhere in Scripture. To be found anywhere in Scripture. Just think how remarkable these statements are. This time it's not a group of 144,000 from Israel. It's a group that no one can number from every tribe, nation, and language. This time, the group does not need protection from earthly calamity. This group is safe and secure in the presence of the triune God. This group is dressed in white robes, which it said are made white, ironically, by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. You don't wash something in blood if you want to make it clean, but the blood of the Lamb is the exception And what are they holding in their hands? They're holding palm branches. You know what the only other time in the New Testament that palm branches are waved before the throne are? When Jesus rides into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry at the beginning of Holy Week. And people gather around with palm branches in their hands, waving, Hosanna, Hosanna, saying, save us, Jesus. And now here we are, centuries later, salvation belongs to the Lamb. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of who our God is and what he has done and how he is faithful to his people and his promises. Now again, let's make it really clear, this is just God doing what he does again. This is just God fulfilling one of his promises once again. God has promised, believe it or not, from the very beginning to bring this group to himself. Just think about what we just read in Genesis chapter 12. At the end, it said, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's saying that my purpose is not just to save Israel to save Israel. My purpose is to use Israel to filter out my blessing through the entire earth. My purpose is to bring all the families of the earth to me. This has been God's program from the very, very beginning. Just think what a short sampling of scripture has to say about this. Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Psalm 47, 1. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Isaiah, Psalm 96, 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Isaiah 11, 9 through 10. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 66, 18. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they, get, and they shall come and see my glory. Daniel 7, 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, Praise God, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Turn to the New Testament. What does Jesus say? Mark 16, 15. He said, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Matthew 28, 18, more specifically, go therefore and make disciples of who? All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How's it gonna go? Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth, all to what end? Philippians 2, 10 through 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Catch us up to Revelation 7. What's it say? After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Amen. What God promises will be fulfilled because God is faithful to his people and his promises. And all along, all along, God has promised to bring together people from every tribe, language, and nation. I remember when I first heard this news, when this was made real to me. It was my sophomore year of college, and I was on a a Grace Bible Church mission trip to Greece. I went because I thought Greece sounded cool, really holy. (laughs) And I remember we had been sharing the gospel with all of these Greek students who didn't believe. And one night, my trip leader sat us down and read this passage list, plus about 20 others, to us and said, listen, this is not a side program for God. It's not a side hustle for God to bring together the nations. No, the central point of God's plan all along from then to the future is to gather to himself a group from every tribe, language, and nation. And this is why we're here in Greece. It's not because the Euros are good, though they are. (laughs) We're here because God's mission is to ransom to himself people from every tribe and language and nation. So I just want to take a minute and pause and say, church, what if this is God reminding us of the same in this moment? What if this is God saying, do you see this passage? Do you see my plan? Do you understand what great privilege it is to be left here on the earth with the mission of making disciples of all of the nations? How might you participate in what I'm going to do? 
the question is not, will God fulfill his promises? The question is, will we participate? In a few weeks, we're going to have what Grace Bible Church calls Go Weekend. We've done this for a long time because this is at the core of who we are here at Grace. We win and we send disciples to all of the nations. We have over 100 missionary units scattered around the world, believe it or not. It's an amazing thing about our church. So I just want to begin to to challenge you to pray alongside your family or just with the Lord and say, God, what is my part in this? And then a few weeks at Go Weekend, we're going to ask the question, how can we participate in this vision becoming a reality sooner rather than later? How can we participate in the promise that God has already made in Revelation chapter 7? How can we step in as A.W. Tozer so beautifully wrote all those years ago, God, I'll go anywhere at any time to do anything for you. This is the beautiful future that we await. And what's happening around the throne? Well, that's how this passage ends. That's how this passage ends, and it's beautiful. Verse 15, therefore, they, the tribulation believers, those who believed in God out of the tribulation, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. One commentary I read on this said, to be constantly with someone who is the object of devoted love is reward indeed. To be constantly in the presence of someone who is not the object of one's love could be tantamount to tribulation itself. (laughs) It's kind of funny, right? It's like there are some people that if you were told you're in their presence day and night constantly, you'd be like, I'll take the tribulation. (laughs) But they're... But God's presence isn't like that at all. God's presence is the opposite of that. Because with God, what is provided? What's provided with God? Look at verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 49, which says this, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water, he will guide them. To first century Middle Eastern ears, the promise to have all of your food needs met and your thirst eternally quenched is heaven indeed. These were daily concerns. You were working for your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. That was a plea. Please, God. They have all of that met. And here it's like him, it would be like God saying to us, everything that concerns you, Every daily need that you have, every anxiety that you have, when you step into my presence, they're gone. They're wiped away forever. And the scorching heat won't bother you anymore. He's not talking about the sun on a glorious day when it's 70 degrees outside and the sun feels amazing. No, he's talking about the Texas summer heat, 115, when you just don't want to be in it. He's saying that is a thing of the past. The scorching heat will bother you no more. And then what will he provide Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's quoting Isaiah 25, which says this, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces. It's a promise, ironically, that the lamb will be their shepherd. Sheep are not ordinarily shepherds, right? But here, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world cares for us. 
his sheep forever and ever, wiping away every tear from our eyes. One commentator said it like this, what is presented is the promise of God, not for ultimate intervention in the present age, but for perfect intervention in the age to come. The Bible makes clear that we will suffer. Here, believers labor in difficulty. There, they rejoice with the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. All of this Old Testament quotation is showing the central point that God is faithful to his people and his promises. God is faithful to his people and his promises. What's this mean for us? Well, last year, um, Hannah and I, that's my wife, we went back and watched the Star Wars movies. We hadn't watched these movies in a, in a really long time, um, but I'd seen them when I was a kid. And I remember when I watched these Star Wars movies, I, I watched them much differently than I had the first time. Because the first time, I didn't know what was going to happen next, right? I was terrified. Is Vader going to win? Is that emperor guy going to win out and the empire just rule over the universe? But when I rewatched them, I knew the truth. The good will ultimately triumph over evil. The empire will not stand. I knew the end of the story and my future belief impacted my present reality. And listen, I want us to just walk away with this thought lodged into our heads this morning that our knowledge of the future can actually impact our living in the present. As we believe that Jesus will do these things, God will rule and reign on the earth, bring people to himself, and care for us before the throne as our shepherd forever. If we believe that, it can actually impact our present experience. Think about David in Psalm 23, that famous psalm. What does David say? God will be my shepherd? No, he says that God is my shepherd. We can experience the streams of living water. We can experience Jesus' light and easy yoke here and now. It's an incomplete picture of the fullness that is to come, but it's a picture nonetheless. The promise of eternal salvation can be experienced here and now through our present salvation. The promise that people from every tribe, language, and nation will come to faith in God and be worshiping him before his throne forever and ever can be experienced now through missional living. The promise that we will one day worship God before his throne forever and ever can be experienced now through our worship. We can experience the coming age, though it's an incomplete taste of the fullness that is to come, it's a taste nonetheless, and it's a beautiful, good taste. So we decided to rework the service today and put the worship portion at the very end because we believe that when you look at this passage, It just demands and invites us into a worshipful expression of our faith to God. So I hope that right now what we'll do is just take a minute and breathe and pray and believe that right now, through this worship set here this morning at Grace Bible Church Creekside, I can get a taste of the heavenly throne room that is coming before me soon one day. I can get a taste of what it's going to be like before God's throne forever and ever and ever. Amen. So what I want to invite us to do is I'll pray, and then we'll stand and respond, just having in our minds, this is the kind of care which God has for us. This is the kind of radical love which God shows to us. Salvation belongs to our God. So let's pray, and then we'll respond to what we've just seen in worship. God, thank you for the reality that you are so, so good and you will care for us. Thank you for your tender and loving care for us, Lord Jesus. 
thank you for the pictured reality that this is, that we just got to see. Lord, I, I just pray that you wouldn't even give us the chance to participate in this worship set because you would come back to the earth now and bring us back to yourself. But God, thank you that every moment that we have here on this earth is meant to be directed toward you in worship. God, thank you that the greatest privilege of our lives is participating in what you've promised. So I pray that we would do that here today. Jesus, thank you for this holy moment. Help it to be an intimate, beautiful one between all of us as individuals. And you, Holy Spirit, we know that you're in this place. Move in our hearts now. Pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and worship our King Jesus.